Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with our TechCrunch writers, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Someone's rocket hit the moon, but we're not sure whose. So lunar observers noticed that a chunk of rocket hit the moon, leaving a new crater. Exactly whose rocket it is isn't clear, and all the likely suspects are denying ownership. Rockets tend to generate a lot of debris when used, especially since most aren't designed to be reusable. Typically, that junk either just burns up in Earth's atmosphere or drifts harmlessly off into space. Amateur skywatchers seem to think it's a leftover piece of a SpaceX launch from 2015, but SpaceX denies it. Others, including NASA, suspect it's a Chinese launch vehicle from 2014, though China denies that too. The bottom line is that our space tracking capabilities aren't really advanced enough, even now, to say for sure what rocket junk belongs to who. To read more about that story, check out Devin Coldaway's article on TechCrunch. In other space news, NASA will soon reveal photos from deep space. So the first full-color images from the James Webb Telescope will be revealed in two weeks. These will be glimpses of the furthest we've ever been able to see out into the universe and should present exciting opportunities for researchers. Don't expect any candid alien shots, but we do know that among the first batch of images will be pictures of the atmospheric spectrum of a planet outside of our solar system. That's more information than we've ever had about planets beyond ours that could potentially support life. This is just the start in terms of what the $10 billion space telescope can do, according to NASA. Expectations are that it'll be able to keep operating as outer space paparazzi for around two decades. Check out more about the James Webb Space Telescope on TC from Aria Alamalhodi. Snapchat launches a paid subscription plan. Snapchat has a new subscription offering called Snapchat Plus that costs $3.99 per month. Subscribers get access to custom home screen icons, as well as a rewatch counter for your posted stories. It also includes a special badge for your profile, the ability to pin a friend as your top pal, and a history of where your friends have generally been moving if they share their location consistently on the platform. Similar to Twitter's subscription offering, these generally amount to nice-to-have additions for hardcore users and not something absolutely essential. Even the company itself admits they don't expect subscribers to be a significant contributor to revenue, meaning the central focus is still squarely on ads. You can read more about Snapchat Plus from Ivan Meta on the site. Tesla lays off nearly 200 autopilot employees. Tesla has closed a San Mateo office and let go of nearly 200 employees who worked there in a mass layoff this week. The employees were on Tesla's autopilot team, which works on autonomous driving features, which the company ultimately hopes will allow its vehicles to operate without driver intervention. Those affected primarily worked in the specific field of data annotation, which involves labeling huge amounts of data to train artificial intelligence systems. Sources indicate Tesla will shift this work to Buffalo, where labor costs for this kind of work are lower, and it may shift the additional burden to existing staff rather than hiring more people at that location. Tesla's current strategy for autonomous driving tech relies almost entirely on visual images, which requires an immense amount of data labeling. This layoff could signal a shift in that strategy, possibly involving new sensor technologies. You can learn more about this in Rebecca Bellin's article on TechCrunch. This week, we talked to Amanda Silverling about VidCon and the changing face of the creator economy, and Arya Alamahodii about NASA and Rocket Lab's big capstone mission to the moon. First up, Amanda will take us through her experience at VidCon, which happened last week in LA. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? It's going great. I am glad to be back from my whirlwind California tour. and An odyssey. Yeah, my journalistic odyssey. I fought a cyclops. Um, I got past <laughs> the sirens. I had to like save, uh, I don't know, I... 
I'm a little rusty on uh, Greek myth, but. <laughs> I always like to start any podcast segment with a Greek myth reference. So thank you for indulging me. Oh yeah, that. for sure. I mean, that's exactly what an audience of tech people love is revisiting <laughs> high school English. <laughs> but yeah, you you have had a busy few weeks. I think one of the things that you did right in the middle there and one of the things that we're very interested in for the purposes of this podcast is you attended VidCon, which is the big, I guess the biggest, right, annual creator conference or event. Is that fair to say that it's the biggest? Yeah, I think there's nothing really that compares to the size and the scale and the caliber of people that attend VidCon. I mean, COVID-wise, was a little concerning to be at a conference with 50,000 people. But wow, knock yeah. on wood, so far so good. Wearing a mask indoors is a great option in any time. Yes. Yeah, yeah so 50,000 people. Wow, that is a huge attendance. And so like for people who may have heard of VidCon or maybe some of our audience isn't even aware of it, but what kind of show is it? Like you go and there's booths and it's a big exhibit hall or what do they have there at the show? Yeah. So VidCon has been around for maybe, I think over 10 years at this point. Mm -hmm. It was originally founded by John and Hank Green, the vlog brothers slash people who taught you chemistry in high school slash young adult authors slash now Hank Green is weirdly TikTok famous, which is hilarious right. because he is 40. But, yeah. you know, you can be 40 and TikTok famous as wow, this good. conference I'm proved. Help, personally. Yeah. <laughs> get Daryl on TikTok. Where's <laughs> when when is it time for Daryl to be TikTok famous? We have to talk to someone about this. But yeah, so they separated it this year into three different tracks. So there was a community track, which was more like meet and greets with creators, like creators performing on stage, the creator track, which is stuff like, hey, how do YouTube analytics work? And also here's this panel of like successful TikTokers talking about their tips and tricks. And then mm. the industry track, which is for the boring people like us, where <laughs> it's more about like, where's the creator economy industry heading? Like, do we really need to have 30 Lincoln bio startups and questions mm. like that? But it was really fun to go to a mix of all the different events on all the different tracks. And then in addition to that, they have a huge expo hall with so many tech companies and startups and agencies for creators also that are on the floor there. And I think the standout was that, do you know about Squishmallows? I know nothing of Squishmallows. This is the first time I've heard this word. They are these big, puffy, stuffed animals that are very cozy. They're like a thing. Like the Gen Z all about Squishmallows. That's all okay. you got to know about Gen Z. They love Squishmallows, <laughs> apparently. And they had a human crane machine and they would strap you into the crane and move you around. And then you would try to like grab the Squishmallow you wanted. Oh, oh, like and the claw machine game. Yeah. But with yeah. a person. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there was like a there was like a four hour line for that. And then even like I was a speaker at the conference. So I had the same credentials as the quote unquote featured creators, which was mm -hmm. very funny because then people saw that I had the coveted yellow badge and thought that I was famous. And then I asked a security guard just because I like, got lost, like, oh, hey, how do you get to this place? And they were like, oh, well, do you mean like, how do you get there? Or how do you get there without being swarmed? And I was uh. like, I promise you, no one is going to swarm me. <laughs> like, maybe like one person I know from the internet will come up to me and be like, oh, hey, we follow each other on Twitter. But like, that's it. Right. 
But because I had the special badge, I was able to go to the expo like after hours to like skip the lines. But even still, that Squishmallow human claw machine line was intimidating. So I did so not did, get a Squishmallow. You did not do it. Oh, no. my goodness. However, okay. Jelly Smack, who I moderated a panel for, they're a creator economy startup that helps monetize and distribute content there. It's a whole thing. They had a actual cream machine, but because it's like it's at VidCon, you can play as many times as you want. So I did for like the first time in my life win a crane machine game. Oh, nice. So clearly this is why TechCrunch sent me to VidCon so I could become better at crane machines. Yeah, our hope was that you would get a prize from some kind of novelty (laughs) machine. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's all I have to say about VidCon. Yeah, nice. Okay. But you mentioned moderating. So uh, how was that experience for you? You mentioned with the the panel subject, but what was it like actually doing that? I mean, honestly, I felt very prepared after having done a panel at the TechCrunch Climate event the week prior where I was interviewing three people at once, whereas this one was a one-on-one conversation. So I was like, oh, this is easier. Like there's two fewer people to worry about. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it was really fun to be on the VidCon stage. And I interviewed the president of Jelly Smack. And I think it's just interesting to sort of catch up with all these different creator economy companies that I've covered over the last year or so and compare them and see how they're all doing because some of them are doing the same stuff. Yep. And it's interesting to see the different approaches that they each take. So like Jelly Smack, for example, there's kind of like two arms to their business. One of them is so basically they started out as like a content churning machine, essentially. And Mm -hmm. they got so much content and so many followers and so many views across all their platforms and all their different channels that they were able to build AI that helps predict the success of social media content. So then they use that by having big creators like Mr. Beast, for example, who we will probably talk more about, the star of YouTube right now, Mr. Beast. So for someone like him, they would say, hey, you're doing incredible on YouTube. Let's use our analytics and our AI to show you the best way that you can move cross-platform and make content on TikTok or on YouTube Shorts or Mm. on Instagram or something like that. I mean, the trade-off for creators is if you're somebody as big as Mr. Beast, it's more of a question of your time is more valuable than your potential money because the more time you put into things, the less potential you have to make money. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're putting more time and effort into like the actual research into the thing, then you're not getting the money out of like the production of the thing, right? Like you're basically burning time that could otherwise be generating money for you. Yeah, so I mean, the big question with that sort of thing is when does it become worth it to give up a portion of your pay to a company to do a lot of this stuff for you? Right, exactly. I mean, it seems like it's working well for the creators that they're working with so far. And then another side of their business is licensing back catalog content. Mm. So again, let's say you're Mr. Beast. And He's a good example because, you know, I think most people are familiar with him at this point. Through yeah, he, he does exploits. a bunch of crazy stunts. I've written about him on TechCrunch.com. So he could say, I'm going to license my 100 earliest videos to this company. And then they're going to pay me a large upfront sum of cash that I can put into my business now. And then for the next five years, they get all of my ad revenue. I mean, it's also, it it is a similar kind of conundrum that I think startup founders face where the question is, is it better for your business to get a ton of money up front 
but then mm-hmm. have to pay equity versus just bootstrapping yeah. it. Yeah. And in another way, it's like also the age old struggle of like upfront pay versus royalties, right? Yeah. For a lot of creatives. So. Yeah. But a, a really similar or a really interesting way to leverage kind of the new realities of like creator economics and social media platforms mm-hmm. in a different way to make that like make sense in that world. Right. For creators who can afford it or who think that, yes, the short term benefit is going to outweigh that maybe the long term pain. Right. Yeah. I think one of the more interesting interviews I did, which all the interviews I did was interesting, but I talked to Jim Lauderback, who was an advisor to VidCon. He used to be directly involved with like putting on VidCon, but now he's in more of like a creator economy, big brain advisor guy role. And we were talking about the life cycle of a creator and how he observes that on YouTube, it seems like somebody remains relevant for like five to seven years on average. And Mm -hmm. then on TikTok, it seems like the life cycle might be even shorter. So I think what a lot of creator economy companies are trying to do is to try to see how long you can stretch the life cycle and how long a creator can remain relevant. And that was a big theme in the discussions I had with creators about like, a lot of these people got famous during the pandemic. And this was their first big event where they're unexpectedly being swarmed by fans. And I mean, it's wild to go from like, do you really know what it means to have a million followers on TikTok when you're quarantined versus then when you go to a big online video event? And I think it's interesting to talk to creators about the kind of strategies they're using to try to make their careers more sustainable. And another thing is something that Jim pointed out to me is, is it really the end of the world if you're only a YouTube star for five to seven years? Because it's not as though you're not building a skill set that can help you in a lot of different careers. Absolutely. If you're somebody who is able to build and sustain an audience of millions of people and make content that engages them, that's an insane skill set that is really helpful for a lot of jobs. And we are seeing, like Jim said, that there was somebody who was a featured creator at one of the first VidCons who now this past VidCon was here as somebody that was like an executive at a creator company. Yeah. 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 I think it, it translates for sure. And, but I think the key ingredient is like knowing it, right? Because mm-hmm. that must be immensely useful. Because if you can predict that there is a finite amount of time that you have in this, then you can make the most of it, right? And you yeah. can lay the groundwork and say like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to do something now that becomes later on some kind of e-commerce business that's sustainable outside of my own fame or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. it's not just like all of a sudden you come to the end and you're like, what? Nobody told me. I thought the good days were going to last forever, which is, yeah. I think... A lot of people's approach, right? Yeah. Or even like you see creators like Ghost Honey, who I am a fan of. He has like a podcast where he like talks to ghosts, but Great. it's like fictional. That sounds wonderful. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's beautiful. I don't know. Like he's this like kind of like art school guy. Like he went to art school. He was a public school teacher, I think an art teacher. And then during the pandemic, both he and his husband got laid off and then started doing TikTok. And now he has a podcast and a book deal and he helps TikTok when they do presentations for brands about how to make money on TikTok. He's one of the creators that they go to to be like, hey, do you want to talk to this brand and we will give you money. And then if I'm remembering correctly, I think he said he was going to try to get into acting. And like, there's a lot of different things people are doing and it's interesting to see. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like overall there's a real maturation in that space. And like, I think that's 
to the good of everyone. But um, they're an interesting thing. You referenced the Mr. Beast. This is kind of like a discussion that we've seen time and time again with like swap out the name, right? Because everybody's always looking for the mystery of the success of the algorithm. How do you game the algorithm or how do you make it work to your advantage? And so Mr. Beast was talking to that directly with YouTube, right? I think on stage he was speaking to a person from YouTube. So do you want to tell us a bit about that panel and how it was received and also what kind of takeaways you had from it? Yeah, that was a really interesting panel because that was in a random room far off from everything. Like it wasn't like a main event, which you would think Mr. Beast explaining the YouTube algorithm would be a pretty desirable event. But I guess the VidCon organizers didn't realize just how desirable it would be because I think it started at 10 a.m. And by like 9.55, there were like people lined up. They were getting literally every last seat filled. They had people standing across the back wall. And I arrived on time, but there was not room. And then I was just like, but I'm a journalist and my editor really needs me to cover this panel. Even though like (laughs) I was just kind of operating of my own accord. Like, I mean, my directives were just kind of go and talk to interesting people and learn stuff and write good things. But I was like, I really need to get into this panel. I'm a journalist. And then they were like, okay, okay. And they found me a little seat and I sat in my little seat and wrote my little article. But it was interesting though. I think one of the most interesting things Mr. Beast said was one that he told creators that if they're not doing short form content, so like TikTok, YouTube shorts, et cetera, that they need to be doing that now. And second, that whenever you talk about will the algorithm like this, how will this content do with the algorithm to replace algorithm with audience? Right. Which it's one of those things where at first notice it's like, oh, well, easy for Mr. Beast to say he has a massive audience and to a certain extent, whatever he does will be viewed by millions of people no matter what. But I do think that's a really interesting way to think about content creation in that Yes, there is a bit of a game to being like, let me make sure that if my entire audience is in the U.S. that I'm not posting at like 3 a.m. Eastern time because people just aren't going to be online. Like there are certain things where the algorithm does matter, but I do think he is making a good point that having a core audience that likes you and trusts you and values your content and the community around your content feels like it is probably something that helps you build a more sustainable career in the long run than just kind of keeping up with whatever YouTube's algorithm is doing on any given day. Yeah, absolutely. And almost every, anyone who works in creative endeavors or publishing or anything is subject now to a variety of different algorithms, right? But if you lose sight of the fact that like ultimately you want to serve the audience, then you're going to go down a bad path. And it's happened time and time again. And it remains sort of like, the advice to give, but it is interesting to see how it repeats and gets kind of like rediscovered by new generations on new platforms and new creators and stuff like that time and time again, right? Yeah. And they were also talking about how on YouTube, it feels like longer form content performs better. And that's why you see people making these hour long explaining internet drama videos, but also They talked about both Mr. Beast and the representative from YouTube who works on the literal discovery portion of YouTube. So like the person who probably knows the algorithm as well as anybody, they were talking about how like, yeah, if you want to make long form content, there is value to making long form content. But 
if you're making it longer just for the sake of making the video longer, then obviously your audience is going to know and nobody wants to hear you talk about nothing for an extra half hour. Yeah. Good advice. Don't fill column inches just for the sake of filling column inches is the old version of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like web pixels that you can just scroll down. And <laughs> I, I can't imagine working for like a print newspaper and thinking about column inches. That's just so far from my experience in journalism. <laughs> Mine too, actually. I just use it because I, I remember hearing that, but yeah. I've never actually had experience in that. So yeah, I mean, yeah. we did print my high school newspaper, but that you was know. just coincidental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, thanks very much, Amanda. I mean, that's terrific to hear about your experience there at VidCon. And I know you've got a few articles up on the site and we'll direct people to that in the podcast notes, but you'll have more to come as well. So keep an eye on that. And I think also you're going to share, hopefully you share some of your experience of having the unique experience of going directly from this to a labor event afterwards yeah, and seeing some of the parallels between creator economy and, you know, it is labor and how that shows yeah. up for creators, right? Yeah, I mean, it might seem kind of disparate to go from like talking to TikTokers to talking about Apple employees unionizing an Apple store for the first time. But I think that a lot of what interests me in the creator economy is that this is a way that creative people are figuring out how to make a living doing things that they enjoy and having more agency and control over their life than you do in a typical nine to five job or a service job or like these more traditional ways of making a living. And then I'm interested in labor because I think we're in such an interesting time in the labor movement where it seems like there's more union activity now than there has been in decades. And even still, the amount of unions today is so much lower than it was even in like the 60s or the 30s. And now you're seeing like young people, like the kind of people that are at TikTok being like, unions are cool. Like people being able to bargain with their employer and make sure that they're being treated fairly and having a set way of going about bargaining and trying to advocate for themselves in the workplace is cool now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's good news. So Mm -hmm. thanks again, Amanda. And yeah, people can go read all about all this stuff on TechCrunch now and in the future as well. (laughs) And soon you can find Daryl on TikTok where he's making uh, cooking videos. I don't know. What would your if you what would your TikTok niche be? (laughs) I probably something with dogs because I have dogs. But yeah. Okay, cool. So you're so you're a dog account. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Look out for that. Yeah, look out for that. (laughs) Next, we talked to Ari about why a rocket launch this week carrying a relatively small 55-pound satellite is punching above its weight. Hey, Aria, how's it going? Good, Daryl. How are you doing? Great. It's a great week for space. It's always a great week for space, right? Maybe. But this is a a particularly (laughs) good week for publicly funded space. Maybe. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, public-private partnerships. Yeah. As it would happen. Yeah. So do you want to give us a bit of a breakdown on Rocket Lab's launch this week and NASA's capstone mission? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So earlier this week, Rocket Lab from its launch facility in New Zealand launched Capstone. So Capstone is an acronym like everything in the space industry. A tortured acronym, probably. (laughs) 
I know. I know. Sometimes I think they start with the word and like move backwards to. They absolutely do. <laughs> yeah. So, so capstone, and I do not have this memorized. I'm going to read this. It stands for Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment. Okay. Wow. So that's a mouthful. Yes. That is the name of the mission. And capstone's objective is to test a unique kind of orbit around the moon. What is interesting about this orbit is that, well, one, it's never been flown before. Mm. Two, NASA hopes that from the data we get from this mission, from CAPS, which is the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System, the data that CAPS gives us will be enough so that sometime around the middle of the decade, we can launch what's called gateway, which would be a orbiting station, essentially, around the moon on this unique orbit that CAPS is testing. So the idea would be we don't just have the International Space Station and, you know, potentially a Chinese space station in space by the middle of the decade, but we also have this orbiting platform called Gateway. So it's a pretty cool first step towards establishing Gateway, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of what we heard so far from the Artemis program, which is the general group of missions that NASA has to kind of go back to the moon, right? And spend That's right. a fair amount of time there as opposed to just going there and coming back. Yes. It's not theoretical, like they're doing work, but they're all doing work here on the ground for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, they sent the probe to the moon to sort of test out, scout out the area. But this mm-hmm. sounds like it's really, we're getting to the part, we're getting to the infrastructure part, where it's like, wow, mm-hmm. you're really laying the rails for, for this return to the moon, right? Yes, that's right. This is definitely the first step for the Artemis program. And I think, honestly, I think it's really a great win for NASA. I think the Artemis program, there have been a lot of questions about its budget and the timeline. And I think, honestly, a lot of people are like, why are we going to the moon? Right. Like, why are we spending billions of dollars to go to the moon when, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening here on Earth? Well, we've already been there, for one. Right. But also, yes, we have lots of problems here. <laughs> right. Like, especially, you know, this economic downturn. It's like, what are we doing? So I think having a sort of concrete mission under their belt is really, really good for the agency at this particular juncture. But then with Gateway, you know, it isn't just about the moon. If we look a little bit further, we could think of it as sort of a way station to other planets. And that is maybe a little bit more exciting to the average person. Um, You can think about it as a way station to Mars, let's say. Mm -hmm. And that opens up a whole other sort of trajectory for human space exploration. So that's pretty exciting too. Very exciting. Yeah. And and it's exciting. So we've talked mainly about why it's exciting for NASA and for public space program in the United States, but also very exciting for Rocket Lab, which was their private Mm. launch partner on this. And uh, you spoke to Rocket Lab CEO Peter back about this our old friend peter yes (laughs) yes friend of the pod yes (laughs) but he i mean he's always a very uh excited person he's always very happy to be working in space but how was he on this one what was your gauge of how excited he was to be launching to the moon when i spoke to him he was very very excited but you could tell he was very serious and very focused Hmm. and the way that he described the sort of demands on the electron launch vehicle which is Rocket Lab's small launch vehicle that was commissioned by NASA for this mission, but also the demands on Photon, which is Rocket Lab's spacecraft that they have developed for a range of purposes. But for this purpose, it's sort of the third stage that will actually carry Capstone through its series of orbits on its way to the moon. The way he described the demands on both of these 
was, you know, as if they're really being tested to their limits. Mm. So he said everything's been stripped off of Electron because this is the biggest mass it's ever carried. Even the cameras that we watch when we watch like a live stream of a launch, yeah. you know, the, the nice little cameras that are on the Electron, he was like, even those you know, we had to get rid of because wow. every single gram counts and has to be accounted for. And also the particular maneuvers that Photon is still performing, which is a series of sort of phasing orbits over six days, where with each orbit, it's increasing its apogee and its speed. And it's kind of building up this I don't think momentum is quite the right word. It's just building Enough up its inertia velocity. Or, but so that it can slingshot out, right? And kind of... You know, I, I actually said, is slingshot a good And he analogy? was like, this and is he not said, no. <laughs> Yeah. He was like, no. I was like, oh. Well, he's the physicist or the rocket scientist, right? I know. But, so it's, yeah. yeah, that's why it's not, it's not quite a slingshot, but it is, you know, conducting maneuvers to build up speed, essentially. And this is very, very tricky. So eventually, Photon is going to perform this final burn to inject capstone into basically a orbital pathway to the moon. And that's actually going to take mm. a couple of months. So photons slash rocket labs work will be done in a couple of days. But from the way that he described, again, you and I, you know, we're like uh, slingshots and he's like, no, but <laughs> it's a very complex series of maneuvers essentially. And so that was also, I think why he was very focused because even after the launch is done, their work is not yet over. Absolutely. This is yeah. also rocket labs first, you know, deep space mission. Rocket lab wants to go to Venus they have been contracted by NASA to send two photons to Mars in 2024. So mm -hmm. I think it was also, you know, he was just really, I think they're going to get a lot of great experience and information about how photon operates in space from this mission. So I think it's also really, really valuable for them so that they can go to other planets in the future. Yeah, because they're doing this right now for NASA, for the agency, but they mm -hmm. probably intend to offer this service to commercial partners as well eventually as there's more interest in deep space exploration. Yeah, and I don't know how many details they have released. I know that they're referring to, so the mission to Mars is again going to be a NASA partnership. And I know that they intend to make the mission to Venus the first fully private mission. Mm. So I don't know if they've released any further details about that, but they will certainly be looking for opening up opportunities for the commercial space industry to start exploring other planets as well, for sure. Right. And yeah, and as you pointed out, it's the, the launch was successful, but the mm -hmm. part after that is still a going concern. Mm -hmm. And so Peter's probably not sleeping for, for a couple months until that's all complete and it's on its way. I think what was the metaphor? I think it was in your article that he used mm. describing it like a oh, like, like a firing a gun. Right. It, he said something like shooting a bullet across kilometers. Like that's the yeah. kind of accuracy that they need to execute this mission. Yeah, just really, really stunning. I mean, but again, their work will be done in a couple of days. So from there, so long as they sort of inject capstone into the correct orbit, from there, you know, we have computer models to make mm -hmm. sure these things will turn out okay. So barring some kind of like act of God, hopefully it'll be all good. And then we're going to have capstone orbiting in this orbit called near rectilinear halo orbit for about six months. If all goes mm -hmm. to plan, which, you know, hopefully it will. Which they also refer to as an acronym, I believe, because it is NASA, like N-R-H-O or something, right? Yeah. The orbit? Yeah. yeah. But at least, yeah. yeah. That one doesn't make a cool word. <laughs> right. At least. Which they must have been like really sad about. Halo. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like, 
<laughs> but they do they do refer to it by an acronym. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the actual payload itself? So I saw this and it stuck in my brain. I think I used it, you used it, but like microwave sized satellite is what people described it as. So Mm -hmm. what's actually involved in that? It's not just like a literal piece of iron that's the size of a microwave. Like it's not a weight. It has purpose and technology on board. Of course. Of course. Yes. So it is apparently microwave oven size. That is taken from NASA. So NASA is the one that I think that first was like, it's like a microwave because I think. I was trying to think of another comparable to like vary it. And I couldn't come up. (laughs) Bigger than a bread box, smaller than a, yeah. Yeah. So 55 pounds, but you're right. It is, you know, it it does have a purpose. What's interesting is, so like all of the NASA scientists did a Reddit AMA, I think on Ask Science. And I was just looking through that and someone was like, you know, why are we testing this orbit? Like, can't, again, like I was kind of saying, like, don't we have computers that can do that? And someone from NASA sort of said, it's actually about how the spacecraft how how caps and then ultimately hopefully gateway will actually function in this orbit so there's equipment caps has equipment to test navigation and to test station keeping so navigation mm. is really just how to predict capstone's movements how to predict its speed how often it needs to communicate with us back on earth how we can predict its movements, generating an accurate trajectory. And then station keeping is orbital maintenance. So every so often, this NRHO is very stable, which is why Mm -hmm. it is very ideal for Gateway, because Gateway won't need a lot of propellant to stay in orbit, right? It's a very stable orbit. But if I remember correctly, the person from NASA said, like once a week, they will need to conduct like a little burn, like a little nudge to keep it in orbit. So they're right. also testing the orbital maintenance piece of it as well, which, you know, is going to be very important because Gateway is going to be crewed. And so, you yeah. know, we don't want to sort of mess around with that. So it'll be in orbit for about six months. And then Capstone is going to kamikaze itself <laughs> into the surface into the of the moon. moon. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's just going to... Yeah, they're just going to smash it in the surface of the moon. They'll probably learn something from that, too. Ness is pretty good about getting Making as much everything, as they can. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a good point. I haven't I haven't heard anyone from NASA talk about that, but I'm sure they're like, hmm, let's test how to, yeah, how to just chuck something at the moon and see what happens. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's what's going to happen around six months from November. So let's say next April is when the mission right. will conclude. Right. Yeah. So, And then hopefully after that, they'll be able to build the real thing, right? Or at least start to, because I'm sure they'll do it in pieces too, just like they've done the regular space station. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they will be able to start building it. And also hopefully by then the agency will have the first Artemis mission under its belt, Artemis right. 1, which will hopefully take place as early as I think late August. There's still some question marks around that, but that is going to test NASA's Space Launch System rocket and the Orion capsule for the first time. And so, you know, that's the other really important part. And that's the one that just, that one doesn't actually require Gateway, right? That mission, that first mission? No, it doesn't require Gateway. No, no, no. So that is just testing the rocket and testing the spacecraft. But hopefully by the time this mission has concluded, we also have a bit more confidence in the Artemis program in general, because again, the Space Launch System has been massively over budget has been yes running you know on a terrible delays yeah Yeah. just lots of delays so i think also by 
next April. Hopefully we will have that under our belt and we'll have a better sense of like, okay, like this is happening. Artemis is happening. Yeah. Cause yeah. So this is already a step where you can finally say like, all right, NASA, you got some metal into space, but now they Mm -hmm. need to get the big metal into space. And that was, Mm -hmm. I mean, the most recent we've been following along and like they had their dress rehearsal attempt, which is essentially just like they fuel up the rocket and they kind of go to almost the Mm -hmm. point where the the rocket would launch, but then they Mm -hmm. stop and say, okay, everybody stand down. We know it works. And unfortunately the first few times it didn't go like that. They found out that it wouldn't have worked. (laughs) Like they found out there was, well, they didn't find that out. That's not fair, but they found out there was valve errors that could have potentially caused problems. Right. Which to be fair is like the point of these tests, right? To identify the problems. So the tests in some ways you can accurately say that they functioned as they should. Yeah. I mean, even most, this most recent wet dress rehearsal, the goal is to get to like T minus 10 seconds, like right before all of the engines ignite. And they had to stop at T minus 29 seconds. And so everyone was like, right. oh, we're going to have yet another wet dress rehearsal. But NASA was like, nope, we're good. We're good. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. You're like, okay. But yeah. So they're, <laughs> they said, nope, this is good. And we're going to try and fly it hopefully by as soon as August. Yeah. Well, yeah. fingers crossed it happens this year because I think that's something everybody would really like to see happen just so we can move on and make some more <laughs> progress in this program. Yeah. So we can all move on with our lives. Talk about <laughs> something else. <laughs> I know, uh, I know, I know. And also like we've spent, we like the taxpayer have spent a lot of money on this. And yes. I do think a lot of people are sort of like, they're just not always tuned into the agency's activities, which is completely fair enough. But it's important to remember that, you know, they are funded by the people. They're funded by Congress. So we should hope, we should want NASA to succeed because otherwise it's like $3 billion yeah. <laughs> down the toilet. Which we could have used for other stuff probably. Right. But because Space Launch System <laughs> is not reusable. So, yeah, um, that's right. You know, we just, we have this one chance for each sort of flight. So, yeah. So when we launched this one, just so everyone understands, this one has no one on board, but it's essentially to prove out that we can do this with someone on board. And then we will build an entirely new version of this system. I think it's probably being built somewhat in parallel, but like, yeah, yeah, but it's not the same one because it's fully expendable. Right. So we started basically. Yeah. 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 Think about Artemis one is just like a test mission. That's really what it is. There's not going to be any people on it, but the rockets never flown. So just think about it as like, the very first test mission of this rocket. And then once we start getting humans back on the moon, maybe by 2025, we can crew Gateway. Maybe, I don't know what kind of timeline they're thinking in terms of like when they would have humans on Gateway, maybe the latter part of this decade. I don't know. And the other thing, you know, is if we do have humans on the moon, there can be a sort of like really convenient and hopefully very safe resupply for them. Yeah. That isn't requiring a whole other launch from Earth, which is, you know, when we need to resupply like the International Space Station, for example, we have to do. So hopefully it'll in in that way as well, it will all come together very nicely. Yeah. We're all keeping our eyes peeled. (laughs) Yeah, here's hoping. So we'll check back in in 10 years and see. (laughs) (laughs) We'll all be gray. Like, did we get to the moon yet? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. But also, I mean, in 10 years, there won't even be a international space station anymore R. that's R. right so yeah um, it's it's due for its end of life they do keep extending it but it seems like there's only so much duct tape you can uh, yeah. slap onto that thing to keep it in space yeah so. it sounds like it's genuinely like very creaky and yeah. just it needs to be replaced so anyway yeah. but, but yeah right. first step capstone first step capstone all right thanks very much aria super exciting and i was joking we'll probably have you on 
you know, many times between now and 10 years from now to talk about other parts, other beats in this ongoing story. Yes. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Daryl. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TCPodcast, all one word, to get 20% off both annual and two-year plans. Check out all the other TC podcasts too, including Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.